This is the sound of disruption. In the early 1800s, steam power took the world by storm, changing how we did things forever. Initially made to pump water out of mines, steam engines went on to power trains and boats, and from there, transport just took off. Welcome to Think Digital Futures, where we bring you stories from the digital age. I'm your host, Nina Kopel, and today we're looking at disruption. Disruption in technology isn't new. It's been happening since cavemen first made tools. The only difference is now it's getting much, much, much faster. So fast that we sometimes don't realize anything's changed. And the result is right there in your living room. The technology is replacing businesses and not necessarily for the, the ultimate good, I don't think. Remember those Saturday night outings to the movie rental place? Spending way too long browsing through the new releases, seeking advice from the guys in the store about what to borrow, and arguing with whoever you were with about what to get. And if you're anything like me, after all that, you'd end up borrowing the same things over and over again anyway. And then, inevitably, would forget to return them until like a day after their due-by date. Well, Monica and her husband owned one of those places, Movie HQ in Barara. The two of us just love movies. And that's why we got into the industry to start with. It was one of those common things that, you know, we both really shared. And for us, it was a it was a really nice business to have. People were coming in for a nice reason. You're coming in to be, you know, entertained. It was a local business, so you know, got to know sort of everybody. So it was a social sort of a thing, you know, as well. It wasn't it wasn't just like a business. But then Monica's work, Monica's life, experienced disruption. Online TV phenomenon Netflix will launch in Australia on March 24th. March 24th, the US giant Netflix will soon have a direct line to your most intimate viewing announcements uh, in the media industry for a long time. Netflix is coming to Australia. When Netflix came in, I can't even tell you when that was because it was on my birthday, <laughs> 24th of March. It had a huge nosedive, huge. Um, and every one of us in the industry knew that that was going to happen. All of the telecommunication companies and everything were all offering these yeah, special deals. If you come over to us, we'll give you three months free and Netflix and blah, blah, blah. But we were all sort of thinking that, you know, the honeymoon period would sort of finish and then we would bounce back. But Movie HQ didn't bounce back. It sank. We all, I think, really thought that while everybody was getting their free streaming and everything, you know, to get themselves used to it, we'd have to, you know, wear a hit. But, that, you know, bit by bit by bit, it would come back, you know. And we, we certainly had some people who did. You know, we'd have people come in and say, my internet is just so slow, I can't do anything. In two weeks, I'd use up my whole uh, month's worth of internet allowance, so, you know, I can't do it. It takes too long. But I think there's just so many people who just, as I said, just for the convenience sort of sake of not having to go up and go into the video store, um, just, just didn't come back. Speed, convenience, ease of access. Technology is endlessly advancing with these goals in mind. We're constantly swapping in old phones for the newest model and chucking out the things in our lives we don't use anymore. But what happens when the thing being swapped for the newer model is you? when you are the piece of machine that's become redundant. 
the intrinsic employment model, which is the uh, master-servant relationship, is broken. Even middle to senior managers, they work in a company, an organisation, the vain hope they're going to get promotion. All of a sudden, half of the business is being outsourced to foreign country or their industry is being disrupted. So the career paths which were working in previous generations just don't exist now. I don't know about you, but I've heard this before, that my career path will be different to my parents, just as theirs was different to my grandparents. There will be more changes, more zigzagging from company to company. What I find harder to understand and what, as a society, we seem to be struggling to explain is how to rectify this uncertainty, how to plan for the future so we can better navigate the instability. Rob Livingston is a fellow with the UTS Faculty of Engineering NIT, but also a consultant and advisor on workplace technology and change. And one of the things he's trying to grapple with is how exactly we can plan for our careers when we have no idea what it is that we're planning for. We are all almost living in a very big experiment. And with the, uh, with the focus on the short term, and I think there's various commentators that have talked about our, particularly in the Western societies, our short-termism is a bit of a concern. Everything's in the short term here and now, which I guess from an evolutionary point of view, we had to focus on the short term because when we stepped out of the cave, that uh, rustle on the leaves, if we worried and didn't think about it and took take action in the short term, that tiger would just take you out of the gene pool. So... It's in our nature to be short-term thinking, but to cast your mind forward to say, you know, our kids and our grandkids, what sort of world they're going to live in, it's most likely going to be very, very different to what it is now. But we still are, uh, you know, still are dealing with our caveman uh, neurology and our caveman um, physiologies. And, you know, intrinsically, I think, you know, human humans are sometimes not so smart, but generally we're quite adaptable as, as a species. And um, But it boils down to individuals at a point in time saying, how do I feed my family? How do I get a job that I, I don't mind going to? And that's the real nub of the issue, and that, uh, that causes uh, you know, short-term issues at a societal level. Careers are disrupted as companies and organizations move in and out of certain um, phases of evolution. It's all up in the air going at a fast rate. So that's why I think the... The, the, the power of the individual to treat uh, their own job and the career as, as, as they're running their own um, corner store, if you will. What, what sort of things do they need to do? What sort of things do they need to consider so that they remain relevant? While this disruption isn't new, it's different. Once upon a time, it was seen as an issue for the working class, and the theory was that by going to university and getting a good education, we could avoid uncertainty and our careers would be stable. But Rob Livingston is challenging this idea. If, if I had to have my career again, and knowing what I know now, I would probably have left school and be, taken a trade, maybe an electrician or, or something like that, because... I would be needing to apply my hands on to a job which cannot physically be done by someone else. If someone needs wiring in the roof or some um, uh, factory needs an uh, electric motor moved or something like that, uh, y- you can't do that via a remote, uh, remote uh, worker. You have to be on site. And it also means that you've got something which is, which is foundational skills. It gets you amongst the workforce, gets you in, in understanding how businesses and organizations, it teaches you customer service. All of these sort of things are vocationally very, very important. 
rather than necessarily piling into university straight out. And and I would I would think that um, you know I mean that that's just one example. And everyone everyone has to do this on their own bat. Going to university first. Um, if you want to be an engineer, and uh, you know, if you, if you absolutely you want to be a civil engineer, great. You come out, and you fortunately most civil engineers in Australia appears to be short of engineers now, so that's great. You get most likely get a job and, and fulfilling one at that. But if you're a lawyer, it's a different story because the oversupply of lawyers and the change in the in legal uh, legal industry in terms of uh, how things are being done and that's being disrupted certainly by technology. You know, it's all of those sort of things come into play uh, when when you have to make these sort of decisions in terms of your career. So, so you know, d- test the assumptions. If uh, if your family, your parents, or whoever or if you think, oh, I want to go to university, maybe you want to do a trade first. Then, when you want to go to university, and then you might find after you've done a trade and you've understood how things work, and you've got a bit of money in the bank, then you might go and do a university degree later and then you find that it's absolutely relevant and it's really something you want to do etc so so everyone has their own path to follow and i think it's just a question of, uh, of testing some of the assumptions as to um as to uh, where uh, an individual needs to go and what they want to do and also what they're good at and what they're not so good at and what they feel happy doing but then once we find out what it is that we're good at and we start doing it we have to be careful not to get too complacent or fall into what Rob Livingston calls the, the success, success trap. trap. Is the one which everyone falls into a certain extent. We we love our job. We're working for a fantastic uh, manager or set of managers. Great team, nice environment. You love what you do. You're passionate about, it and everything's great. At some point in time, the music stops. There happened to be a change in the executive, or the company disappears, or it gets disrupted, or it gets bought and sold. There's all kinds of influences which cause the environment to be disrupted, not necessarily purely a technology disruption. That's just one of the reasons why uh, the rug gets pulled up from under you potentially. So the issue is that point is that if you had been uh, spending a small amount of your time over the years that you've been loving your job to death and, and committed and having a fantastic time, investing in validating are your skills current and useful – by applying for roles maybe once every six months to test the market and you're actually seeking evidence that you look at, you know, I'll put my resume on the market and I'll try and do some uh, door knocking and I find nothing's open and no matter how hard I try, I don't even get a phone call. That should be evidence to you. That should something change in your current happy work environment, you're going to be caught short. On the other hand, if you raise the flag and you find all of a sudden you're swamped with fantastic job offers, then you have evidence to say, well, okay, if the current environment changes, you do have other options. So using, you know, that, that's a very simplified example of, of testing the assumptions about your future employability. And where you see gaps, once again, the, the very powerful analogy of, of seeing your career as your own, uh, you're, you're, you're running your own little business, as it were, what are you going to do to minimize or change your inventory of skills uh, or experiences that allows you to flex into different roles. Our lives used to be straightforward. There was an expectation that you'd graduate from university, get a job, and your career would be rolled out before you like a red carpet ushering you to retirement. Now it's more like a game of Pac-Man. You take one step into your chosen career, and suddenly there are ghosts flying out of every corner, trying to throw you off course. The best way to fight them? Well, that depends what your skills are. 
So I, I used to work in media for many, many years, and I'm originally from Russia. So, I mean, you, you know, media went through a massive transformation, and now it's all digital. I'm talking to Grigory Puninov. He founded Code for Fun, a Sydney-based programming school for kids, and is a pretty good example of someone who managed to absolutely ride a wave of disruption to success. Or to go with the game analogy, he's winning Pac-Man. But when Grigory and his wife started looking for coding schools for their sons two and a half years ago, they couldn't find one. So last year they found a programmer in a small space, just for their kids and some of their friends. But the demand was so huge that before they knew it, they were running a coding for kids business. Grigory managed to jump from a career he felt unstable in, where he could have become an irrelevant tool in a media machine, to a job that will help others navigate their careers in the future. So uh, w- what I've noticed is that programmers are, are, are constantly on a very high demand and it's just going bigger and bigger because all products are digital now and they are created by, by programmers. So I thought, okay, that's, that's something, something really, really interesting. And I, start, I, I did my master's in, in computer science myself in order to kind of catch up because my bachelor is in journalism. And uh, seven years ago, I knew nothing about digital. So I thought, okay, I should educate myself. So I decided to study programming. And while I was studying programming, I was trying to explain some programming concepts which were quite, quite hard for me to understand, frankly speaking, because I'm, I'm a grown-up person. I was trying to explain uh, some quite complicated programming concepts to my kids, and they picked it up very fast. And I realized that actually uh, the earlier you start learning coding, the, the easier it is. And this is why we actually um, decided to, to teach our kids coding, because they're young, because they are interested in, in, in digital technology. They like computers and all that kind of digital stuff. And we thought, okay, let's, let's teach them coding. That's, that's, that's how it all started. Do you think it's actually going to help them, though, in day-to-day life when they do decide on their eventual careers? I believe it definitely w- will help them because even if they don't turn into, into professional programmers or software engineers, because the skills which kids acquire when they study programming, it, it's a very interesting set of skills. Students learn how to solve problems. Because programming is all about problem solving. You have a problem and you need to find a solution. So it's really very creative process of finding a solution to a problem. And the way a program is structured, it also increases logical thinking, as I said, problem solving. So it's, it's, it's really beneficial for, for any, any, any student to study coding, even if you don't end in, 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 a, digital, in a digital field. Uh, but on the on the other way, we so we're running our classes in, in in different schools and and dealing with different students. We've noticed one interesting thing: there are some students who, let's say, don't perform really well in school in uh, within a regular regular curriculum. Right? They are they are they might be bored or they might be a bit shy and they're not performing really well. However. Being introduced to coding, they become absolute stars because they have some skills which they don't know how to apply because regular subjects don't allow them to uh, kind of shy. And uh, and this is really really interesting phenomenon which we which we've noticed with quite a number of students in our classes that that kids who are who do not do well in in other subjects they do really well in coding because they have some skills which they cannot really apply with, within, within a regular curriculum. Looking at current HR statistics, the, the, the global HR statistics, uh, there is about 1 million programmers' vacancies in U.S. currently. 
and this number is growing every year by one million. So therefore, currently there are five million empty programmers positions. Can you can you imagine that? Wow. Um, and um, uh, so creating more programmers, uh, uh, it, it, it just uh, it just perfect fit. I don't think that these skills would ever be redundant. How do you actually teach kids how to code? How do you make it fun and engaging so it's not all about just, you know, boring computer programming? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a very good question because it's actually quite complicated material. Uh, kids, uh, they like to play computer games. And what we do, we teach them how to program computer games. So we use computer games as a tool and as a, as a subject. So we, let's say we have a simple computer game, which is a maze game, right? We have, let's say, a character, let's say a cat, and a cat needs to go through this uh, labyrinth and get to the finish point. So we need to program the cat to move. We need to program the cat so it cannot go through the walls. We need to program the cat so it can pick up, um, let's say, keys to the doors and open the doors and, and, get, and get to the finish point. So we're using computer games as a tool to teach kids coding because they like computer games. And when we show them that they can actually create their own computer games, that's a very inspiring moment for kids. They, that, 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 that fact really motivates them to, to work uh, because sometimes it's really hard, uh, especially if you, if you think about some advanced computer games with such functionalities as score and uh, different levels. There are quite a number of mathematical operations involved and... Uh, uh, sometimes it might be might be hard, but uh, because they are really willing to create their own games, that that fact really drives them. As a kid, I was always kind of interested in technical stuff. I think I originally wanted to be a civil engineer when I was growing up, and I interested in dams and bridges and stuff like that. But then when this kind of computer entered my world, I was fascinated with it and just really interested in how they worked and what they could be used for. So the school didn't actually teach any sort of computing subjects. So given I taught myself how to program, I ended up um, having the job of like teaching programming to some of the, some of the classes I was in at, at school. And I also got interested in sort of helping the school um, use that computer to do various different administrative tasks. And that way I just got really, you know, into in, I guess, my first application of computers for doing interesting and useful things. And by the time I'd got to sort of into the main part of, of high school, computers like the Apple II had come along and there were a few, the PC hadn't arrived yet, but there were a few computers out there, very, and they're really, really crude machines by today's standards, but they're all kind of hobbyist machines. Um, and it was possible to sort of connect with people at, at different meetings and you know, find out what people were doing. But of course, this is well before the internet um, had, had arrived. So there was no way to kind of connect with people. But I sort of got aware of what the field of computer science was. Um, there were some books in the school library. I remember them. There was called The Art of Computer Programming, volumes one to four. I think they were written by this really famous computer scientist called Donald Knuth. And I didn't really know what a computer scientist was. But when I was coming to think about going off to university and I was interested in science and computer science, so you know, found a, found a couple of courses that interested me and ended up studying computer science and, uh, and maths at Monash. Professor Glenn Whitewick is the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research at the University of Technology, Sydney. He's one of those people who's really good at adapting to disruption. In fact, his whole life has been shaped by the way his mind has adapted to working with machines. Yeah, and I, I kind of describe it almost as kind of algorithmic thinking because if you have, you know, under, under the covers and mucking around with computing was at that point was essentially about programming them. 
And so programming is a very logical, sort of methodical way of tackling a problem. In order to get a computer to solve a problem, you have to really um, explicitly program it to understand the problem and the data and so on. So that does certainly translate into, and I've, you know, this is a good thing and also a bad thing. You know, sometimes you might get accused of being kind of too linear in your thinking because I'll try and analyse a problem, figure out how to solve it in a in a you know, logical sequence of steps. And of course, you bring other people along and they don't think that way, and which is good. But you've got to kind of recognise that your brain's wired, literally, I think, wired a particular way as a consequence of of that style of thinking. I think engineers often are, are, are like that as well. You know, they'll have a very kind of analytical approach and you're ultimately trying to build something that will be you know, robust and solve a, a problem. And, and software engineering and, and programming are very much like that. This type of problem solving has always been considered unique to humans and we aren't anywhere near replacing, say, Professor Glenn Whitewick with a robot but as computers become more and more intelligent and we continue to produce more intelligent robots, is it possible that we're witnessing the birth of another species brain? You know, there's, there's obviously people that have talked about this concept of singularity where um, we'll end up building a machine or a system that is more powerful than, than, than humans are. I mean, it's interesting today, there are many examples where computers, just in their raw computational power or in some of these new AI areas, are demonstrably more capable than humans. You know, IBM, again, going back to IBM example, there was the um, Deep Blue machine that played Kasparov um, and beat him. There was the Jeopardy example, um, beat the top two Jeopardy players, champions of all time. There was the Google Go computer um, beating, I think, one of the top Go players. So, And then if you just think of the raw computational power of a computer to add up numbers and do searching and so on, it exceeds our humans' capability. And yet there are other areas of human endeavour where, you know, we're fantastic, the ability to do image processing, to recognise faces and voices, to understand, you know, humour and sarcasm and create and imagine and things like that. Um, And certainly there's a lot of work going on in that sort of interface between computing and the brain, understanding the structure of the brain, trying to build um, computer chips that are exact analogies to, you know, the human brain with synapses and neurons and so on. But we still have no real idea of how information is actually represented in the in the brain. We have a great idea of it in a computer in terms of ones and zeros and stored in different ways um, to represent text and to represent images and all the rest of it. But there's very little understanding or, you know, not a complete understanding by any means of how information inside the brain actually exists. You know, when you when I remember something from 20 years ago, where does that information come from and how does it get stored and represented in my brain um, you know, many people will ask many questions about my brain, but you know how that stuff actually works is is still a you know obviously a very active area of, uh, of research. If we can unlock some of those problems or some of those that understanding, I suspect we'll be able to build some quite new and novel computers that are biologically you know inspired um, that don't use transistors and ones and zeros to store information anymore. But I think that's probably you know a little way off. It's a, fa- a fantastic set of research. One area of amongst a lot of interesting research work we're doing at UTS um, is led by a, a professor called Marianne Williams, and I've known Marianne for for many many years. Um, and she does great work in artificial intelligence, and so on. But a lot of the work she's been doing recently has been around this field called social robotics. So robots obviously have been around for a while. They became very 
popular in industrial settings for improving the way cars are manufactured and so on. They could weld more accurately than, than humans do. But those robots would kind of sit of bolted to the ground, programmed for a particular task, and not having really any interaction with humans. In fact, you didn't want them to interact with humans, and you had to put special cages around them and interlock devices so if a human came near it, the robot would shut down. But, of course, we're expecting robots now to to be much more engaged with humans. And there's many examples from toys to, you know, robotic vacuums that run around people's houses and so on. And there are countries, for example, Japan, that has, you know, in te- anticipating a, a aging population, has been investing an enormous amount of money in building robots to augment humans in their house. In that case, you actually are requiring that those robots interact with humans and how they do that and and you know do they how they understand my emotions or your emotions and how do they express emotions in a way that is more human like is this whole interesting field of of social robotics and one of the nice examples that Marianne gives is um think of a robot that um you wanted to go and get it wanted to go and get a cup of coffee for me so you know please go and get me the cup of coffee robot and it would walk up to would it walk straight up to the coffee shop if it planned its algorithm by saying shortest path from where I am now to the coffee shop it would probably just barrel up to the front of the front of the line and demand a coffee whereas if it saw that there was a queue there how would it know where its place in the queue needed to be you know I was in a coffee shop the other day there's a bunch of people standing around and I was like looking around and I could suddenly sense that some people had already paid so I said oh you know, is this the queue? And I just sort of was able to, just through social interactions, rapidly get to the right place in the queue without offending anybody. How do you program a robot to do that in a very, very sensitive way? And if there's four or five robots and a bunch of humans, you know, how do you make sure that that, that they all work nicely and that the robots don't do anything offensive and they don't harm anybody and that they get to the to the right outcome. Interesting area. Even Professor Whitewick is susceptible to disruption. When he first developed his love for computers, he was playing with script-only computer games that didn't have any graphics. Now researchers around the world are racing to build the best quantum computer, which would revolutionise the way we solve problems. And while this would mean a big change in the way Professor Whitewick deals with computers, he says he isn't afraid of the challenge. It's fascinating. Um, It's it's highly um, at the moment. It's like it's very, very specialised. So, um, you know, one of the I think remarkable aspects of the field of computing is how it's moved from being a domain where few people practised it and you know pioneered it to being a field where you know pretty much every field of human endeavour that I can think of, you know, it's got computing embedded in or interacting with it or doing something to it, and because computers have become both so powerful and also so cheap, all of us can interact and use computers for our daily lives. So in the past, you know, if you wanted to do innovation, for example, um, and you were trying to drive, you know, computing or whatever, you needed to be in a sort of specialised place, either a university or a big company that that developed computers to sort of participate. Now any of us can do innovative work on computers, and that's why you see the sort of explosion of applications on, you know, Apple's... Apple's app platform or Google's equivalent platform and there's just because innovation and computing is now accessible to everybody so that sort of democratization of computing I think has been fantastic if we think about where we're at with kind of quantum computing we've almost gone back to that sort of pioneering days where you know it's the domain of high-end research labs 
um, you know, a number of companies, Google, Microsoft, IBM and others, some of the US um, you know, defence agencies and so on are putting money into these. Most of the governments around the world in Europe, Australia, Japan, China, US are putting money into quantum computing. But it's still a very, very specialised field. Now, whether it gets to the same point of being accessible like um, the normal field of computing has, I, I don't know. At this point, I'd probably say it won't because it at the moment it requires you know incredibly deep technical knowledge of physics maths and and so on to to get there and most of the people working in it uh, have got highly specialized specialized you know technical and scientific skills maybe in the future it'll be more accessible but at the moment it's certainly an area that's much more sort of limited which is why it's a great topic for um, for a university to be a leader in researching You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, where we tell stories from the digital age. You can subscribe to our podcast by typing Think Digital Futures into iTunes or your favorite podcast app. This program is a collaboration between UTS and 2SER. Thanks to Lawrence Bull and Jake Morecambe for their work on the show this week. I'm Nina Copel. Talk to you next time. know that there are four different ways to listen to 2SER? No. That's right. You can find us at 107.3 on the old FM band. One. Or 2SER on your digital radio. Two. You can catch the 2SER stream by clicking on the Listen Now button at 2SER.com. Three. Or you can download the 2SER app onto your iPhone. Four. Now there's no excuse to miss even a minute of 2SER. Stories, ideas, music. Available now in four convenient formats. Uh, 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 2SER 107.3. Oh, yeah. 2SER 107.3.